Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Let's stand together and go to God's Word. We're going to be looking at a few verses from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. I think I gave them through 17 uh, when I sent the scripture in, but we're going to stop at verse 16. And let's do what we usually do. Let's read together God's word. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. Today, we're going to stop right there. Today, I'm going to talk about the necessity of Christian community. The necessity of Christian community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us your holy, perfect, an errant and sufficient word. We thank you, Lord God, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you've sent your spirit to work in us, that your name might be glorified through our lives. Lord, use these coming moments, this time, for your glorious good purpose in the lives of your people. Strengthen and encourage your church and do the work that only you can do. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. As Pastor Kurt said, this is my last time actually standing before you and preaching as a pastor at Epiphany Fellowship. I said it that way because I hope maybe sometime I'll preach here again. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, but, but it has been one of the great joys beyond what words can express for my wife and I, not just to serve here in leadership, but just to be here for almost 11 years. And I want to tell you as I begin, before we get into the verses, we're going to look at the verses today closely, but I came here 11 years ago a very broken man, bruised soul, a hurting and frustrated person in so many ways. And the sad reality is that Most of that pain, most of that hurt 
most of those bruises came from the church. The last church that we left before we came here. But I wish I could say that was only our, our one and only bad experience in church. It wasn't. We'd been through two other extremely painful situations in churches where leadership got off the track of this and went a different way. And we were committed. We were lifers. We were in it. And so we left bruised and broken. And I, I, I want to tell you that when we left that previous church, that my mind began to go some places. This isn't once, this isn't twice, this is like three strikes. I used to play baseball and you're out with three strikes. Like the church, we've gotten hurt so many times in so many ways and so deeply, I don't think I can do it anymore. And so my mind began to go to a place. Jesus, I love you, and I know you love me, but this church is a mess. Can it just be me and you? <laughs> Can we just like hang out and like I'll, I'll love you and I'll, I'll care about you and I'll live for you, but there's this book. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called The Bible. And it doesn't know anything about a me and Jesus Christianity. And there's this person who also happens to be the third person of the Trinity who was speaking to me and letting me know, Larry, how are you going to say? Now, these are not exact words. How are you going to say that you love the head, Jesus, but you hate his body, the church. Husbands, try that with your wife. Baby, I love your head. The body, I can't stand it. It's not going to work well. It's not going to work well. God is crystal clear in his word that we need one another in the church. Many of you have been hurt in the church. I'd be an idiot if I didn't think that many of you haven't been hurt here. It happens. It happens in the course of deep relationship. But the church is God's plan A. And the church is God's plan B. And his plan C. He doesn't have another plan. It's the church. Let me use an illustration. I've used it here before. I've written about it, but some illustrations I don't feel bad using over and over again, so I'll use this one. And it is the illustration of a giant sequoia tree. Some of you know these great and marvelous trees. Many of them are in California. And they grow to be 250 to even 300 feet tall. That's as tall as a 25-story building. 
They're the largest living things on earth. They weigh as much as an ocean-going freighter on the open seas. Many of them are a thousand years old. Some of them have been around since Jesus walked in Palestine. And the oldest one, we're told, let me put it this way, when, Jesus, when David was the king in Jerusalem and dancing before the Lord, there was a tree that's still here today that when David was there, it was 500 years old already. It's amazing trees. And you would think, wow, what, has, what have these trees been through to last that long? They must have the deepest roots of any tree in the world. They must go down miles. How do they survive? But the reality is that the roots of these trees are actually exceedingly shallow. They don't even have what a common elm tree or maple tree has, a taproot. It goes down. Their roots are shallow. But here's the thing about a giant sequoia tree. You will never find one by itself. You'll never just find a couple. They're in large groves. And their roots don't go deep, but the roots go out wide. And they are interconnected with one another so that the reality is that to come against one of these trees, to knock it down, you've got to knock down all of them. They're interconnected. They're together. They're not deep, but they are wide and connected. And if you can't see what I'm using this illustration for in terms of Christian community by now, <laughs> there may be a problem, but I'll tell you what it is anyway. If you think that your roots are so deep in the Lord, that your foundation is so strong in the Lord, that you can make it yourself. You are deceived. We dramatically and drastically and absolutely need one another in order to walk out this Christian life. So let's look at the verses in Hebrews chapter 12. I want to look at three things that true Christian community does. First of all, Christian community makes sure that people know Jesus. Look at verse 15, the first part of that verse. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. Such a basic, simple statement. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. I want to look at that first verb in CSB. It's make sure. In the New Living Translation, it says, look after each other. In the ESV, it says, see to it. There's an imperative verb here that is telling us that there is something that as a community of believers we must do. The word is actually 
a verbal form of a noun that is in 1 Timothy and in Titus, and the noun is where we get our word overseer or the word bishop. What the word means is to look closely after each other. It means to pay close attention to, to oversee something up close. Here's the interesting thing, that when this word is used in the pastoral epistles, they're written to leaders in the church, but the book of Hebrews is not written to leaders, it's written to every person in the church. And so when the word says, make sure, see to it, watch closely, so that no one among you fall short of the grace of God. That is not simply the job of a pastor, of an elder, of a bishop, of a teacher, of a deacon. If you're a member of the body of Christ, that is your job. We watch out for one another. Not from afar, but up close. In the mix together. We watch out for one another. It is the communal task of the body of Christ to watch over one another's walk with God. And he says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. What does that mean? Well, in the context of the book of Hebrews, which is a book that was written to first century Jewish people who became believers in Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, this book written to them is written in part because many are beginning to fall away from the way of Christ because of persecution, because of the possibility even of losing their lives. And so they're reconsidering some of them. Is this really worth it? Judaism maybe was pretty good, but what this book does is it shows that all of these former ways that God has spoken, all of these things that God has done in the past, they are all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Be Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the tabernacle. He's better than just the Sabbath. He's better than the commandments. Jesus is what everything is pointing to. He's worth it. But what's happening in the community is some people are falling away. They're warned in chapter 3 and verse 12. Scripture says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. See, we've got to be careful that uh, some, sometimes that our theology doesn't mess up our reality. What do I mean by that? Some are going to argue no one in the church is ever going to fall away. Look, God predestined before the foundation of the world, and we can harp on that, and that is true, and that is Bible. But I don't know about you, but I've known many people yeah. 
who by all of my sensual information, by my senses, seem to love God, walk with God, praise God, worship God, know His Word, and yet they've left not only the church, but they've left the faith. And that's what the writer is dealing with here, that reality, and we've got to deal with that reality in such a way that we're making it our business. Yes, it's my business that you know this Christ, not just that you're in the church, that you're a cultural Christian. It's easy to be a cultural Christian in the United States of America. People are dying around the world because they're professing Christ. Someone looks at us funny and we think that's persecution. It ain't. And so we have a weak form of Christianity here many times. And what I would want to say is what we've made and often what we're making is not disciples, but we're making consciples. What's a consciple? I'm glad you asked. Put it on the board. A consciple. Noun. This is from the Larium Webster Dictionary. Consciple. Noun. Number one. A person who thinks of themselves as a disciple of Jesus Christ, but whose life is given over to a consumer mentality. Any good dictionary has multiple definitions. Consciple number two. A member of the Christian community who easily turns his back from following Jesus when life becomes difficult. One more for the Holy Ghost. Number three. A person who lives with the assurance of heaven yet has a taste only for the things of this earth. Here's the mantra. If I'm going to church sometimes, maybe a lot of times, maybe just once in a while, if I'm giving, maybe just putting a little something-something in offering, maybe I give a whole lot of money. But if I'm going and if I'm giving, then I'm good. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, God isn't marking off your attendance. God, God is not keeping track closely of your giving so that you can get a big tax refund at the end of the year. And if you give enough, you're in good shape. Can I tell you, God doesn't really care about that. He doesn't want your money and he doesn't want your body to be physically in a certain place at a certain time. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your body. He wants your intellect. He wants your dreams. He wants your visions. He wants every part of you. And when he has that, you're going to be in church, you're going to give, you're going to do these other things, but not to check anything off, you do them because you love him. And he's captured you. Let's look at four contrasts between a consciple and a disciple. First of all, comfort. For a consciple, 
the major determining factor of what I do and what I want is comfort. For a disciple, decisions are not based on what's comfortable to me. Discomfort may cause me to seek God for his will, but ultimately my desire is to do what pleases him. When you go on the path of comfort, that is the path of least resistance. Almost always you can know if that is what categorizes your life, somewhere you've missed what discipleship is. Because God will call you into hard places. God will call you into challenging things. God will call you out of your comfort. He will do that often. It is a part of the Christian life. But disciples don't want anything to do with it. Number two, glory. Because the customer is always right. Glory is conceived as something I have every right to. So life as a disciple means that glory belongs to me. Look, we're all glory mongers. That's in our flesh. That, that is original sin. That's Genesis 3. God, I give you most of the glory, but I want a little over here. But a disciple says all glory belongs to God and my life must be geared to maximize his glory. When I see my tendency towards self-glory, and I don't know about anyone else in this room, but I see mine a lot. And the beautiful thing is I've got people around me that love me that see it too and call me out on it. I'm not naming no names. Hashtag I'm just saying. Number three, love. Consciples. Although there is a facade of love for others, the consumer mindset is actually radical commitment to the love of self above others. So love for others is impatient, weak, self-centered, and short-lived. For a disciple, we're called to love others and seek their good. 1 Corinthians 13, read it sometime. It says that love is patient, love is kind. Love centers its life on others and love endures till the end. The end of that chapter says, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. God calls us to a radical Jesus kind of love. Consciples will never know what that is. And lastly on this list, hardship. For consciples, it's something to be avoided at all costs. When it does come, you're free to use any means necessary to end it. That's, that's, a, that's a little Malcolm word right there. All means necessary. To end it, to avoid it, to minimize it. Hardship is an enemy that you do your best to destroy. Disciple looks at it differently. Hardship is an inevitable part of the Christian life. Jesus said, you will have trouble. You will have tribulations in this world. Inevitable part of the Christian life that is an important part of the sanctification process. Hardship has a specific place in helping you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, although disciples may need some help, often from others around them, to work through hardship. They ultimately embrace it 
as one way that the Lord shapes them to be more like Him. Brothers and sisters, we cannot go on living church life in a way that allows people all around us to simply be disciples. You can have a church of thousands, but if you have thousands of disciples, we've not done what this verse says. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. In other words, we do everything in our power as brothers and sisters to watch over one another in love so that we all cross that finish line for Jesus. Make sure they got it. Don't let someone be next to you in church, in life group, in wherever, and they never really get the gospel, and you know it, but you don't say anything because it might offend them. Secondly, not only does Christian community make sure people know Jesus, but Christian community confronts issues of sin and rebellion. Still that same verb from the beginning of the verse, make sure, but he goes on to say in part B, make sure that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble to defile many. How do you make sure that the root of bitterness does not spring up? How do you do that? You confront it. You deal with stuff. Christians are called to confront. Christians are called to actually deal with stuff. And not just leave it alone for the sake of peace. I can hear someone in here right now saying, Pastor, I get that. That's a good word. But I did my disc assessment. My personality assessment. And on the disc, Pastor, I'm actually a high S. Which means I'm not a confronter. My personality is a cooperative one. I'm not a natural confronter. Cool. Guess what I am on the disc? I'm a high S. Some of y'all don't believe it because of some of the things I've had to say. I'm a high S. Let, let me put it this way. It can't be an excuse for how you live. Let, let me do this, and brothers, don't raise your hands right now. But brothers, how many of you could honestly say, Listen, I have been born in such a way and have such a personality and a desire that there is one woman and one woman alone on this earth who ever gets my attention. <laughs> there is no other woman in this world that I could ever be tempted with in any way, shape, or form because I am given in every way to just have eyes and a heart and an imagination and a mind for one person and one person only and nothing else can ever distract me from that. I would ask you to raise your hand, brother. But if you do raise your hand right now, I want to meet you after service, and we're going to talk about the sin of lying. Now, are you going to go to your wife, if you're married, and say, 
baby. God made me in such a way <laughs> that I, I love you, but there's all these other beautiful, wonderful women, and you know, it's just, I don't mean no harm. Hashtag, I don't mean no harm. But it's just the way God made me, so, you know, can we, that's not going to work, y'all. But that's what we do when we say, I don't need to confront issues in the community because God made me as a non-confronter. Listen, that may be your personality type. But just like your sinful inclination to go outside of the marriage of one man and one woman and to give yourself fully to that woman, God didn't make you that way. Sin did. And sin causes us not to be strong and courageous in dealing with sin, but sin causes us in the Christian community to be wimps and to be weak, and to not go to someone that we're called to love and care for and just let them go on a path of destruction because they might think some kind of way about us. But God said to Joshua, I want you to take this land, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. And he repeats it over and over again and says, be strong and very courageous. The Christian life is a courageous life that deals with issues in its community because we love one another. The root of bitterness causes is, is a cause, and I don't have time to look at Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 19. That's where it comes from, but we're not going to look at that. But the root of bitterness is actually talks about in the community of believers where individuals are just putting aside God's word and God's way and living any kind of way and saying, it's all right, I'll be safe, I'll be good if I do that. So it's actually a person with a cavalier attitude towards the things of God. When the church is happy to live in false peace and let anything in the community, we're allowing the ungodly roots to spring up that will affect the whole of the community. Paul saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as he writes to the church there. And that church was proud of itself because we love other people so much that we're not going to call out any sin on anyone. So there was a man in the church of Corinth who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And Paul says, look, even the pagans know that's nasty. <laughs> but they're like, nah, you know, we're good. We just love one another. Paul says, that's not love. Verses 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians 5, he says this, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. False peace gained at the expense of loving confrontation preserves 
your own immediate comfort while allowing those around you to suffer and die. So hear me now, the lack of willingness to confront. Now, listen to what I said. I didn't say the lack of ability. Because if you're breathing and you're a Christian, God's given you his Holy Spirit, so you have the ability. But the lack of willingness to lovingly confront others simply shows that you love your own comfort more than you love others or more than you love God. You don't love God. You don't love others. You love to be comfortable. Let me give you another illustration from these giant sequoia trees. These trees thrive for decades and centuries and even millennia in part because of periodic forest fires. Now you say, preacher, now I know you're tripping. You're making this stuff up. Well, look it up. I'm not making it up. The fires that come within that grove of trees have the effect of burning out smaller trees, bushes, grasses, and other things that are pulling nutrients from the ground that these trees need to grow, to survive, and to thrive. And so when the fires come through, they get rid of the competition for those nutrients that they need. But you've seen forest fires. They burn down the trees. I've seen those same fires. Why don't they burn down these trees? I'm glad you asked that question. Because these trees have bark sometimes three feet thick all around the tree. And so when the fire sweeps through, it may singe the bark, but it can't burn down the tree. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to survive and thrive in Christian community, it's not because you live with a false peace that never confronts anything, but it's because you get some thick skin to deal with some hard stuff and to deal with some hard people and to work through stuff and not run away when it gets hard. We live in a day that knows almost nothing about real commitment. When it gets hard, we don't run out. We dig in in the body of Christ. Amen. Now, there may be situations that are so unhealthy and ungodly, you need to get out of there. But listen, when there's conflict in relationships in the body, most often that is God's purifying work that's going on in his body. No one that's been married over 18 minutes thinks that because we say we are one, that we look at everything the same way. We have disagreements. My wife and I will say we had a long and deep discussion. The other night, my wife and I were going out to a movie, and we told our son we're going out to the movie. Uh, and then on Saturday morning, I told him we didn't go out to the movie. He said, why didn't you go out to the movie? And what was the word I used, baby? I said, we were having um, a deep discussion. And we decided it wasn't best to go out to the movie <laughs> the other night. We went to the movie yesterday. It was great. We had fun. But if you have a depth of commitment and relationship, you're going to have disagreement, arguments, fights, 
It's in there, y'all. It's in the church. I'm not talking about fist fights, Reggie. Reggie's like, I ain't laying my hand on nobody. Praise God, neither am I, brother. I'm talking, we disagree strongly. We don't see it the same way. If you even have invested friendships, listen, the two places where you are going to get bruised sometime are in your family of origin and in the church if you're really committed to it. Now, you can breeze through the church without that. Just put on your little Christian clothes and say your little Christian phrases. How you doing, brother? I'm blessed and highly favored. And just keep it moving. But if you're going to get real for a second and have real life and real community, there's going to be hard parts. Listen, let's look at the last thing here. Not only does Christian community mean that we make sure people know Jesus and confront issues of sin and rebellion, but Christian community calls each person to holiness. Verse 16, and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. This dude had the greatest gift you could have as a firstborn son in his time. He had the inheritance that the firstborn got, a double portion of everything. But one day, he was hungry. And he didn't care about that. And he said, I want that bowl of stew. And I'll give up my birthright for it. And he did. Bible says he's an irreverent and immoral person. And in verse 14, we saw before, it says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Holiness. One translation says, without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue holiness. Now, Brothers and sisters, I know that holiness is an old-fashioned word. Our culture certainly doesn't use the word holiness. People really don't talk that way anymore. But I would say to you that God still talks that way. Holiness matters to God when it doesn't matter to our culture, when it doesn't matter to politicians. Holiness matters to God when it doesn't matter to a church. Holiness matters to God when it doesn't matter to you. Holiness matters because it matters to God. And so there is no way around it. God calls his people to holiness. Verse 14 says, don't think that without holiness you're going to see God. So in verse 16, he describes this unholiness of Esau in two ways. First of all, he says, make sure there isn't an immoral person. The word therefore immoral is the word pornos. Another word that's often used in the New Testament, pornea. It means sexual immorality. A person that lives in sexual immorality. Look, from the illustration I used before, every one of us struggles with it in some way. I heard like three amens. That's okay. People struggle with sexual immorality. It doesn't say that you don't struggle with it. It says you don't live in it. And here's one of the major problems in the church 
is that we are able to justify our immorality, our brokenness, because it's not as bad as somebody else's. The church has done an incredibly bad disservice in many ways to those who deal with same-sex attraction because we've made that like a separate class of sin and immorality and then we go around with our heterosexual immorality unchecked and say, I'm not that, at least I'm not that. Your brokenness and your sin is as bad as anyone else's. And until you see that, embrace that, and say, God, help me, you're just making an excuse that, uh, that is going to put you in harm's way with God. He also says, make sure that there's no irreverent person. Irreverent means to be consumed with the things of this world and have no interest in transcendent matters. In other words, it means to be a totally worldly person. I don't know about you, but sometimes as I look at the church at large, it is hard to tell the difference between the values of the church and the values of the world. If getting stuff and having a, a great Life without struggle and problem, if that's what God is all about, he's doing a very bad job of it. Because in this world, we're going to struggle and it's going to be hard sometimes. And that's okay because God's agenda is not my ease. God's agenda is not my comfort. God's agenda is that Jesus Christ would be formed in my life. And that's his agenda for you as well. Listen, how do, we, how do we move in this direction? We move in this direction as we embrace Christian community. My wife and I came here 11 years ago. By that time, I had, had a seminary degree. I'd been in, in ministry for years. My wife and I had been married for over 20 years at that time. But as I said before, I was a bruised, broken, and hurting man. But what I can tell you is that the thing over these last 11 years, more than anything else, that has healed me, that has strengthened me, and that has allowed me to come to a point where as God transitions us to a new assignment, I can go there whole and ready to take on what God has called me to. The thing that has got me there more than anything else is not studying Greek vocabulary. It's not that I can say something about a Hebrew verb, but it is life embedded among you here at Epiphany Fellowship. At Epiphany Fellowship, I've been cared for. At Epiphany Fellowship, I've been encouraged. It, among the people, the leaders and the people, I look around this room and I see people I could name names, but I'm not going to start doing that because I'll get somebody mad at me and we'll have an argument and it won't be good. But uh, don't need a needless argument, right? But because people have loved me well, they've cared for me, they've inspired me, sometimes I've been rebuked at Epiphany Fellowship. 
as a pastor here, rightly so, because I needed to be checked on things. What is all of that? What that is, is love. I've been loved well. Brothers and sisters, be sure of one thing. God is calling you, just like he called me, to fully embrace a life embedded in Christian community. Now, the com this community is a crazy community. And even this one right here at Epiphany. Y'all know y'all crazy. A lot of times it's messy. Often it's hard. Very often it's frustrating. And to make a commitment to community, it is almost always inconvenient. I'm too busy for that. But at the end of the day, God calls it one thing. He calls it glorious. It's glorious because he uses Christian community to turn ain'ts into saints. People come to Christ in the midst of community, even if they thought they were already in Christ beforehand, they find out they're not and they're saved in the midst of that community. And God calls baby Christians, those who are just barely able to walk to become strong men and strong women and those who will propagate the faith and make disciples. He does that as we give ourselves to Christian community. So let me give you an assignment then. Two parts, very simple. Number one, we want you to get involved in Christian community. Two specific ways I'm going to ask for. First of all, is to get involved in a gospel-based DNA group. Some of you are already in those. Some aren't. But there's a little pamphlet. You can get one when you go out in the lobby on these groups today. But all that is is simply making a commitment to one or two other people of the same gender, not to disciple them and them not to disciple you, but to grow together in the Lord. Uh, those who you will give yourself to, you will make yourself known. You'll talk about your struggles and your sins and your failures, but you will continue to point each other to Jesus Christ. How many people are here are in a DNA group even now? Raise your hand if you're in a DNA group. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Get involved in one of these groups. Get one of these pamphlets before you leave. Secondly, devote yourself to a life group here at Epiphany Fellowship. Next week is going to be life group kickoff week for this coming semester for the fall. And if you're not in a group, join a group. Get involved in a group. If you're already in a group, get more involved in the group. I go to life group. How often? Well, I went once a month or I went once a semester. Get involved. Get real involved because listen, brothers and sisters, you, if you understand what the scripture is saying here, you don't just go because of what you get out of it. You go because God has called you to give to other people. It's not a group, it's people. It's a community. And you go to bless others and to be blessed. 
Don't believe the lie propagated by the enemy of, the soul, of your soul that you can make it just fine with a minimal engagement to the community of God's people. You can't. You won't. And you will be destroyed if you try. So hear my heart. My last sermon here as one of your pastors. Pursue one another. Pursue one another. Get involved in each other's lives. It's countercultural. Let me do me. That's not Christian. I love you too much to let you just be you. And I pray that you love me enough that when me being me is not honoring God, that you check me on it. Love one another. Humbly. Lovingly engage one another. Care for one another. And nurture one another in your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you today that you love your church. That you are absolutely... 100% committed to your people. And Lord, we ask that you would call your people to come together more, to make a greater commitment than ever before to one another, that this church might represent you well. And that many would come to faith in Christ and many would grow and become disciple-making believers in, you, in your name. Have your way, Lord, in all these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.